This is Resolutions, a podcast from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm one of your co-hosts, Larry Schooler. We've covered a lot of practice areas for dispute resolution, but one you may not know as much about has to do with environmental issues, from the air we breathe to the water we use, and lots in between. Michelle Strobe has made environmental and public policy mediation the focus of her work. She's a retired professor at the University of Utah and former director of the Environmental Dispute Resolution Program at the Wallace Stegner Center in the College of Law. She also directed Salt Lake Solutions, a collaborative government initiative sponsored by then Salt Lake City Mayor Ralph Becker. She spoke with me and my teaching colleague Stephen Rye about her fascinating career in environmental dispute resolution. Professor Strobe, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I think we should start really with just the the start. Um, you, I'm sure, started out as a child, and then something happened, and then something happened, and then something happened, and you found yourself uh, knee deep in this kind of work. And so, it might be helpful for us to understand uh, a little bit about the steps that that you took that you think led you to doing public policy dispute resolution ultimately. I didn't know I was going to have permission to start with childhood. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> Actually, now that you mentioned it, I'm going to just briefly start at childhood with I grew up with a very authoritarian father who did not believe in engaging any other stakeholders in his decision making. Okay, enough said. Um, so I went to law school a very long time ago and practiced as an enforcement attorney for a state government in environmental matters and ended up ultimately in Alaska and in private practice. And in private practice, I would tell potential clients, if you want to fight the regulations, that's your prerogative, you can do that, but you have the wrong lawyer. You need to go and I will help you find somebody else. If you wanna come into compliance, you've got the right person and I will do that for you. And so my partners at the law firm were not so excited about what I had to say in part because it turned clients away, although not too many, um, and in part because they kept questioning whether that was actually ethical for a lawyer. Was I advocating vigorously for my clients if I didn't do whatever it is they thought needed to be done? And I also had sort of a more collaborative approach. I was always trying to settle with the government agencies, and my partners always questioned whether that was really the right thing to do, um, although the clients benefited from it. So fast forward, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe this lawyering business isn't really for me. And I moved on to public policy work. I worked in DC for a while doing my own, working for the Environmental Law Institute, doing my own work. And one of my clients one day said, well, one of our facilitators is sick. And well, you would do an okay job. How about you go in there and do that? And I didn't even know what it was. So they tell me quick what facilitation is. And here I am facilitating with tribes and environmental groups. And it was interesting. And I probably didn't do so well, but wow, I really loved it and said, this is what I need to do more of. So I got trained up as a mediator. We moved to here to Utah. I got more training as a mediator and I just put myself out there as an environmental mediator and started getting work and have been do did it then for 20, 25 years. What do you think it was that captivated you so much that first time? Well, can I go back to my childhood? Okay. Sure. Remember I said, <laughs> I mentioned there was a father who was authoritarian. Just the idea that you could actually ask all different stakeholder, I mean, I'm now going to use the lingo that we use now, but all different stakeholder interests, sort of what's your perspective on this and try to come up with a consensus-based decision that everybody thought was good enough. I will do that. I'm willing to live with that. I'm willing to do it. 
it was a whole new approach to decision making that just really spoke to me. And I wonder if that facilitation or another kind of stands out as one that was, you know, just particularly meaningful in your professional development, meaning, um, you know, you learned something about how to do this well that you didn't expect or something unexpected, you know, happened differently than had been your plans. And, and that taught you something about, you know, how to be more effective, but just a, a particular project or case or meeting that, that stands out as, as particularly formative for you? Well, that first one, I actually didn't do all that well, because one of the stakeholders who was a Native American came up later and said, we know this was your first one and you tried and it was really good. But I just wanted to mention and very gently, she tells me some language that I had used that was actually not very appropriate, but it had just come out of it was not bad. But it had just come out of my mouth and it made me realize, oh, I have to think and be so careful about what I say. Anyway, she was so gentle about it. And so that was why I then went and got a lot of training because I realized, hmm, can't just do this and think you know how to do it. You have to do a little bit of training. You have to be really um, conscious of what it is you're saying and what it is you're trying to do. Um, and, and sort of to get at the question that you've asked, I think I'm going to talk more about what it is about processes that I really enjoyed the most and thought was the most effective. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with me and how to do this work. But um, I did a lot of collaborations, especially in the past 10 or 15 years here in Utah, where for those of you who don't know, it is the forefront of Sagebrush, Sagebrush Rebellion 3.0, I guess we might call it. Maybe we're on 5.0, who knows? But um, I would get environmental groups and ranchers and county commissioners and federal agencies and state agencies all together, and they didn't always make so nice at the very beginning. And it, it always took about six months of them working together, and at some point, I could just see a shift in the group that they had kind of learned how to be collaborative with each other, and then I could pull back and let them do their work. I mean, I was still there to help guide them. But it took a while, but to see them change how they dealt with other people. And then I know that in other situations, they also dealt with other people more collaboratively. And that was kind of, for me, that's the magic. That's why I kept doing it. Before I hand things over to Steve, I mean, I, I think we should take a little bit of a step back in your, in your entry into this field and ask, can you think of some kind of foundational principles or values that you have come to define over the course of doing this that that apply virtually no matter what the topic or no matter what who the stakeholders are that are important for you to have in any given project so there are three things in terms of sort of core principles or values one is interest-based negotiation one is the iap2 core values and the other is sort of some neuroscience principles that i've been learning more about more recently so interest-based negotiation comes out of is a approach to negotiation, which some people call a win-win approach, whatever. I don't like that term so much, but if you want to think about it that way, it works. comes out of the Harvard program on negotiation. And I will tell a, story, a brief story just to give your students a sense of what interest-based negotiation is. So we can imagine that there is one parent, two children, and one orange, and both children want this orange. And the parent, being a busy parent, Larry, you can't, you can't, relate to that. I know. Being a busy parent told the kids, you guys just need to deal with this, figure it out. And they couldn't and they keep fighting. And so the parent says, 
fine, fine, fine. I'm going to cut the orange in half. And the kids are still really unhappy. And the parent realizes, oh, there was something more here than I realized. Okay. And starts asking some questions. One child wanted the rind of the orange and the rind of an entire orange to bake a cake. And the other child wanted the juice of the orange, the juice of the entire orange to make something, some kind of a drink. And you can all see where this is going. But still, the parent realized, oh, if I had asked a few more questions at the beginning, we could have come up with a solution that would have benefited everybody, an interest-based solution. And so the, what um, the children came in with, each of them saying, I need the whole orange is what's thought of as their position. That is the only solution that they could think of. And their interests were why it is they needed the orange. And if you, and then the questions that um, the parent asked towards the end um, are the interest-based negotiation or interest-based questions. And so how this relates to the work that, we, that I've been doing all these years is what I'm always trying to do is getting the stakeholders to have an interest-based conversation so that they can figure out for themselves and learn from each other kind of what is it that you really need? What do you really want? Maybe the solution you think is the right one is the right one, but also maybe not. Maybe you guys can co-create something together that's going to be even better than anything you ever envisioned alone. So that's, that is the basis of what I've been doing for the past 20, 25 years, is helping people do interest-based negotiation. So International Association for Public Participation has, I believe there are seven core values. I don't remember all seven of them, but I remember that... <laughs> One of the first ones is that the public or people who are potentially affected by a public decision have the right to be involved in that decision making. They have a right to say how they would like to be involved. And after a decision is made, they have the right to hear how their input affected or not the decision. So those, and that is three, of course, out of seven. But to me, they're the most important ones. That has very much informed the kind of work that I do as well. So always trying to create situations where stakeholders, members of the public who are potentially affected, have some voice in a decision. And in the end, also know how their voice was heard, whether or not the decision did what they wanted it to do. But at least they know we were heard. And that, so that was number two. And oh, yeah. And the third thing is something I'm really interested in and I'm only just starting to learn about, but is the neuroscience of conflict and the neuroscience of collaboration. And it just sort of gets it really, I suppose, in a nugget is that all of the um, information that comes into our brain comes in through the emotional processing part of our brain first. So our brain first decides, hmm, is this a threat? Is it not a threat? Shall I be angry? Shall I behave badly? Shall I fight? Shall I flee? You know, all those things. And then once it's gone through that little process, then it can start analytically thinking, focusing on whatever it is. And so when we talk about um, public engagement or collaboration, that is true for every person who is there in the room. Everything is coming through their fight or flight thought process. And for many, and that is something that we cannot control for the first 90 minutes if, in fact, our emotions are triggered. Not 90 minutes. I'm sorry. 90 seconds. I have a stakeholder where it is 90 minutes, but 90 seconds. So for the first 90 seconds, if, in fact, our body says, whoa, this is something I need to react to. For 90 seconds, there's hormones, cortisol, I think it is, running around in your body. And even if we say, let's focus now, your brain is like, no, can do. Cannot focus now. So that sort of learning a little more about neuroscience-wise, how our brain, what it is and is not capable of, has helped me, I think, to put together public engagement and collaborations where we're working with the brain rather than against the brain.
So that's often described as a fire hydrant. A fire hydrant goes off. I'm opening the fire hydrant in the back of my brain. This one stakeholder where it's 90 minutes, no matter what it is, and this person's fire hydrant opens up frequently. She by now knows if I look at her and I just do this, she knows that, oh, I need to take a break now. Such a good idea. Let's take a break. And then when she comes back, she's calmed down. So I wanted to uh, discuss a little bit about your environmental conflict resolution background. Uh, can you describe to me uh, what's unique about such disputes and how alternative dispute resolution practices can be applied to environmental issues? Wow, that's a broad question. And I left my notes somewhere, so I don't remember what I was going to say about it. Um, so what's unique about them, especially here in the West, is that they do trigger people's emotions. People feel really, really passionately about that, which they feel passionately about. And so it's a, oftentimes a challenge to have a sort of rational, fact-focused, um, science-focused conversation about these issues. So that's just sort of a reality of it all. But I think also with a lot of the environmental and natural resource issues, there's a lot of, um, a lot of things that are not known and a lot of things where you might try something. So I've done a lot of um, riparian restoration work where, you, where, for example, cows have been feeding on whatever grass there is there in the stream er, and around the stream, and now there's none left. And there's a variety of things that one can do to restore that area. And so a group can come together and they'll go, okay, these are the things that we're going to do. And then they go out and do it. And in the next season, it didn't do what they thought it was going to do. So they're long, they're very long-term problems that probably people should and could be collaborating on over a very long time. So you're not only solving an immediate problem, you're also trying to set up sort of a long-term working relationship, an adaptive management type of situation. And so that's kind of, at least for the kind of work I've been doing, that's a lot of what it's about, is trying to get them as individuals and and, and their back tables so they're higher ups in a position where they're willing to collaborate over a long period of time to do some things that may or may not work right away and then okay adaptively what are we going to do next oh let's try that and just keep working together even though the um, likelihood of success is there long term but it's very long term and how do you be how do you keep parties engaged when you know it's going to be a long-term solution is there a process or, or a program you can design to, to keep people active and, and interested in a long-term solution as opposed to seeking an immediate resolution? So um, most of the work that I've done differently, I think, than some of the work that Larry does, and I don't know what work you do, but what Larry does in my, the way I understand it is a lot of um, stakeholder engagement, public participation kind of stuff. And what I've been working on more is collaborations where we're actually selecting a very small, not more than 25 group of people across all stakeholder interests who are going to work together. So in that context, in the collaboration context, at the beginning, we already have our conversations about ground rules and what's the objectives here? What are you all trying to do together? And, and there I already introduced about how long I think this might take. It might take a year. It might take two years, whatever. And so Hopefully, the group is committed to that upfront, that they're going to be working together over a long period of time. I also do a good amount of talking about how difficult this work is and how courageous they are to take it on and all that, but also sort of setting up that at, we're not going to be singing Kumbaya at the end of every meeting, right? There might be some meetings where we're groaning and going, oh, my goodness, we're never going anywhere. But after a while, you'll see it goes somewhere. 
if you all keep working at it. Right. That's a great if, point. I could, uh, if I could interject a question on top of that, um, I, I think that we are learning a lot from you about some of the distinctions in the way you approach some of these disputes. But I also would be curious to know what you think um, parties to these disputes, especially the kind that are participating in the groups you're describing, you know, I'll call them task force members or stakeholder group members or whatever, the kinds of qualities that, that they need to uh, exhibit in order to have a productive uh, experience. I mean, patience clearly seems to be one of them, but I, I guess I'm just curious what you think makes for an effective participant in some of these uh, processes? That is actually a great question and an important point. Um, and so I'm going to, I will answer it, but I'm going to step aside for a minute and answer something else that you didn't ask first. So many of my projects, I was not given the opportunity to do a situation assessment first. I was just contacted by whoever was convening the group and said, oh, we've put a great group together and wouldn't you like to facilitate them? And then you get to meet them and you think, this is a great group, but it might not be the right group. But by then, that's who you have. So the sort of the best practice, as I'm sure both of you know, is to do some sort of an assessment before you put a group together to figure out who, what are all the different interests and who would best represent those interests and what are the issues that they may actually reach consensus on. And maybe there are some they can't reach consensus on. And anyway, and then you design a process that has a higher likelihood of success. So then to get that, so I would then be looking for people who, what kind of people would I be looking for to invite? And they would be people who have curiosity to pick up on your question, the word that you used in your question even, people who have curiosity about the issues, about the other people in the group, so who don't come with such a closed mind and such a set idea of this is my one solution, and if I don't get that one solution, I'm going to kill everybody else. Okay, um, so an open mind, and I don't know, they have to be articulate, right? They have to be able to articulate what they are thinking and why they're thinking it, and with the curiosity, hopefully be able to articulate, well, I actually even have some open questions that maybe we can all explore together. Um, and they probably need to be good communicators because they are there representing an interest so, but in a sort of two-way communication. So if I have a rancher, well, I'll pick the ranchers because they're often not the best communicators because they've never been in that position before. They can learn, though. They learn, and they once they realize what I'm supposed to do, they get very good at it. But, so they of, are uh, there representing a particular – what? I'm thinking of Jack Palance and uh, City Slickers, a, not a very verbose uh, man. <laughs> right, right, right. So they're there in the collaboration to represent an interest. And so in the group meetings, they need to be saying, identifying their interests, what the possibilities are. But they probably also, once the group starts getting to some potential solutions or some options that they're considering, then that rancher also needs to go back to maybe other ranchers, maybe if it involves fishing and there's going to be some restriction on fishing in a certain area is going to have to go back to the fishing community um, and his or her friends and talk to them about what's so that so it's a two wake and then bring back those ideas that they get back. So it has to be somebody who is open to kind of talking about things without necessarily advocating, talk, talking about what's happening in the group and bringing back information to the group so that it helps the decision making. Thank you. I'll turn it back to Steve. 
So I'd like to uh, switch gears with you for a bit and go back to uh, your uh, attorney days and your law school days. Uh, I'm speaking from personal experience here. When I did my academic work in alternative dispute resolution, I was in a joint program with the law students and I observed a different perspective from them, uh, which is namely a predilection towards a negotiated settlement as opposed to to uh, other forms of alternative dispute resolution. Did you ever experience a systemic resistance to mediation or ADR practices in your law courses or as uh, as an attorney? So I'm pretty old. When I went to law school, I don't think there was such a thing as ADR or mediation. Or if so, I certainly never heard about it in law school. So there was not, not resistance. I'm thinking there's probably ignorance. Nobody even knew about it, right? Um, and then I explained or I described kind of when I was in the legal practice, a lot of the lawyers were very resistant to settlement negotiations, to collaborative approaches with the government agencies, things like that. That, that just at that time just wasn't done. I'm going to fast forward to I've been an adjunct and now a lecturer at the law school here for a while, more than 10 years, I think. And um, the, my courses, so I, I've taught, does, um, created and taught two courses. One is environmental conflict resolution. So that focuses exclusively on environmental natural resource. And the other class is conflict management, which really includes sort of all aspects of alternative dispute resolution that a lawyer might counter from, yeah. Um, and for many of the students, the law students that I've taught, my course is the one and only time that they ever hear about any of these things in law school now in 2017. Mm, it's yeah. pathetic. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and I think that is not true in all law schools, but in many. Mm. And I've noticed the same. And that's really what I'm trying to drill down to. How do you how do you promote and encourage its use um, as, as a lecturer, as, as an attorney? So, I mean, number one, I would not want to teach the class if, if it was mandatory, but I think the conflict management class or something like that should be mandatory in, for every law student in every law school. And then they at least get a sense of there are the, all these different approaches. Litigation is not the one and only way to deal with things. Um, and awareness is the first step in every 12-step program, right? So awareness would just already improve things so much. Um, what we're what the program that I was working with at the law school, the Environmental Dispute Resolution Program on environmental issues in particular, we've um, put together a variety of things where we're trying to build capacity in the stakeholder community at large to um, have people learn about effective and maybe ineffective too, but mostly effective collaborations and have them think through kind of where could collaborative behavior help us reach the goal that we're trying to reach more. So we're, we're doing it in the stakeholder community and with law students. I'm trying to do it in the law school community by teaching about the different processes, but also doing case studies. So that's the, the other thing I was going to say is with the EDR program, we've also been trying to put together some case studies that actually show something worked well, and these are the somethings that worked well, so that one could read that and go, oh, that's really similar to something I'm working with. Maybe I can try that. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer and exactly what I was hoping you would say. So I'll turn <laughs> it back over to Larry. I wonder what you could say about why mediation and facilitation and consensus processes and collaboration 
have particular benefits to those kinds of disputes where the number of parties is so much larger than what people may associate with, say, traditional mediation. Right. Traditional mediation would be two parties, probably, right? We think of a family dispute. Um, right. Okay. So how do they fit in? Mm. So I already have to make a distinction between having a third party neutral who is the mediator or who is the facilitator or who's even maybe the public participation practitioner. Is that a P3 person? Whatever. Um, there you go. Right. But so a, a distinction between a third party neutral doing that work and people who are in agencies doing the work. I guess I'm going to use sort of a regulatory nego regulatory nego or negotiated regulations as an example of why I think in many instances, but not all, these type of um, more consensus based processes can be effective. Um, so. If we were in law school, I would ask the students to tell to run me through what does the Administrative Procedures Act say about creating regulations and challenging regulations and et cetera. But I will just do the summary myself, I guess, because <laughs> I can't ask your students. So um, to under the federal system, this is not true in all states, but under the federal system, to enact a regulation, generally the age whatever agency it is, and I'm gonna be a little snotty in how I describe it. They, the experts, their scientific experts, fall away into their computer holes and think all about it and come up with what they think is the best solution possible. And they put it out there in the Federal Register as this is our proposed solution. Now we need to hear from the public and we know you're going to love it. Okay, so notice and comment period. And in 60 days or however many days it is, all of you members out there in the public, you come back and you tell us how much you love this great idea that we just put out there as our proposal. And they hear back whatever they hear back. And then they either make a change or don't. And they issue a final regulation. And sure enough, not everybody likes it. And so they litigate it. And so they go to court and they litigate it. And the court says, you know, I think maybe I agree. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. But the court doesn't change the regulation. No, they tell the agency, you go back into your little computer holes and you change it up. And here's some of the things you did wrong. Think on that again and try again. And so they, the experts go back into their holes and they do it all over again. Another proposal. And it could go on multiple times, but you get the idea that it's very time consuming. So what's a different method of doing that? They could, they, the agency could say, we would like to issue a regulation where I think we're going to have to change some industrial processes so that they create less air pollution. Wow, who else might be interested in that? I think the industry might have some things to say. Let's invite them to join us. And, you know, all those people who breathe the air, they might have something to say. Let's invite them to join us. And anyway, you put, they put together relatively small but group of people who are representing different interests and say, now, let's co-create a regulation that we think is going to work, that we, the industry, the environmental groups, the people who breathe the air, et cetera, et cetera, all think is actually going to work and can be implemented. And hopefully they can do that. And then they put out the proposed regulation that all those interests came up with together, and they already all like it. And they'll still hear some comments from the public with the, we don't like it, and wah, wah, wah. But when it finally becomes a final regulation, probably no one is going to litigate because all the major interests co-created it. So that's an example of how I think these type of processes can 
on really complex issues involving a lot of different stakeholder interests be helpful. And two things on that. I mean, one, you, you know, I love when you said people who breathe air might want to have a seat at the table. And, you know, it gets back to kind of the the challenge of finding the quote unquote right participant. I mean, in, in circumstances like that, where there's clearly an interest to be represented and they're not, you know, organized into the amalgamated breathers of America, for instance, you know, what, what, what might that look like? You know, who, who, you know, not a specific person, obviously, but who is right. that representative? So, yeah. So let's, two different ways to look at it. Let's say it's a nationwide air quality regulation, right? So we're talking about some regulation that's going to apply to everybody in the whole United States. I think you could probably assume that major environmental groups who work on air quality issues would be representing the interests of people who breathe, everybody who breathes. I think that a lot of people make that assumption, whether that's correct or not. It's probably correct. I don't know. But I think most people in designing a process would make that assumption. But if we now think about air quality regulations that would apply to a, a specific geographic area, even a state, you could get, you. I mean, number one, you'd also still have your environmental groups. Um, but you might also get somebody from um, a community council or a county commissioner or something like that. It doesn't have to be an elected official. I don't mean that but somebody who kind of represents a community group of people who just live in the community and breathe the air and don't necessarily know a lot about environmental issues, but they know a lot about the quality of life in their neighborhood. And then the other thing I was going to ask you is that there could be some students who hear you say, let's get industry to the table to talk about regulations affecting their industry and interpret that as the fox guarding the hen house or some similar metaphor. In other words, the you know, why is it fair, quote unquote, to give people who are set to be regulated more strictly a chance to do something to influence that? Um, and, you know, why can't it be decided by people who wouldn't have a conflict of interest or whatever? And I, I think you've spoken to that in other ways during the course of this conversation. But what what makes it a worthwhile idea to have they who will be regulated part of the regulatory discussion? Right. So um, there probably are circumstances where it would not be appropriate. But the example that I gave of um, something where um, the industry practice is going to have to change how they do the work, how the industry does their work is going to have to change to benefit air quality. There are I, nobody knows what is and is not possible within that industry better than the industry themselves. And yes, you do have to assume a little bit of good faith on their part that they have to sort of take as a given that there will be changes. And that's why we're going to sit here at the table and help change, shape what those changes are. But there's plenty of examples where EPA, for example, not necessarily in air quality, but in hazardous waste, said, we know exactly what the industry can do to stop generating so much hazardous waste. And the industry, and they just put it out there as a proposal. And then the industry came back and said, well, actually, really, that's not possible. We can't do that. But we'd love to sit down and talk to you about what we could do. So there's a, so if you're going to change the behaviors, I mean, it's, it's almost like having children, right? Okay, a lot of people parent, and my father did, by just telling the child, this is what you're going to do. But at least in my experience, it works a lot better 
if you sit down with the child and talk about this is the issue that we're having, do you agree that this is an issue? And once you get past the yes, I agree that this is an issue, what do you child think we can do, you can do, whatever it is, that we can solve that issue? And if they are invested in designing part of what that change is going to be, they're much more likely to implement it and it's much more likely to be successful. I really just wanted to uh, to to uh, expand on that your last point though. Um, you know, I do work in the private sector and I, I, we do get a lot of public pushback on being involved in, in regulatory affairs. And, you know, I would say that uh, the people in the industry are absolutely the experts. They know these things forwards and backwards. Um, I don't, you know, there is the concern of conflict of interest, but, uh, you know, I completely agree with your point that uh, they should absolutely be involved in the process. So thank you for that point. Um, my last question for you is what, uh, what are some of the skills that you think are most vital and valuable for anyone undertaking this kind of work? By anyone, and I assume by anyone undertaking this kind of work, you're including both our little third party neutral category and our very large anybody who works in anybody who works anywhere no but especially in government and company corporations maybe even ngos doing policy work okay um so with that broad i think um that i'm going to go back to curiosity and sort of having an open mind really really important being an active listener so having good communication skills but i think a lot of times people think of good communication skills means i speak well I put my ideas forth in a, in a way that other people understand it. And that is important, but it is equally and perhaps even more important to be able to actually listen for what and understand what other people are saying and then follow up on that without advocating your own thing. So that sort of active listening, which you may or may not be doing in your class. Um, oh, an understanding of interest-based negotiation. Go read. They need your students need to go read Getting to Yes. Yes. And they might even want to read the next. Well, there's many books in that series, but I think the most recent one is Getting to Yes with Yourself, which at first I thought was kind of wooey, but um, but I've now heard a colleague teach from it, and it's 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 a really good way of kind of becoming more mindful of what it is we ourselves are doing that benefit or don't benefit collaborative conversations. Well, Professor Michelle Strobe from University of Utah and the land of retirement, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Bye. That was mediator Michelle Strobe, a retired professor at the University of Utah and former director of the Environmental Dispute Resolution Program there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resolutions, a podcast from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm Larry Schooler.